This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Thursday afternoon, June 22nd. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Rob Hart. Americans were less charitable last year. We'll discuss the reasons why in our next segment. But right now, it's a big day for data, including the latest report on sales of existing homes. We're joined by Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services, based in Pittsburgh, Gus, thank you for joining us today. And this comes hot on the heels of a rather uh, exuberant report of uh, new housing starts. And this just goes to show that when it comes to existing homes, the market is still sluggish. Uh, that's right. We saw existing single-family home sales decline uh, in May from April, and then we continue to see price decline. So uh, prices are down about 3% over the past year or so. Higher mortgage rates are a significant drag on the housing market, and that's what the Federal Reserve is attempting to do by, by raising the interest rates. They're making it more expensive to buy a home in an effort to cool off economic activity. The, uh, the phrase, if you build it, they will buy, certainly applies to the new housing starts. Uh, when does a new house click over into existing home, into the existing home pile? Uh, once that house is sold for the second time. So the first time when the builder builds it and someone buys it, that's a new home. And then when that first buyer sells it, then it becomes an existing home. Uh, needless to say, most of the houses sold in the United States are existing homes, although new homes are important for GDP because of all the construction costs that are involved. The uh, jobless claims out every Thursday, uh, holding steady at a 20-month high. Layoffs are ticking up a little bit, but what does that say about the overall job market? The, the job market still looks pretty good. We actually saw continuing claims, which is the number of people receiving benefits. That actually fell in the first part of June. Uh, so it looks like when people do lose their jobs, they're finding new ones easily. Uh, so we are seeing a bit of a softening in the labor market. The job growth is still very good. The unemployment rate remains near a 50-year low. Uh, and that's the best news for the economy right now is the strength of the labor market, which is very important for consumer spending. There has been a great deal of confidence that the economy can avoid a recession, uh, that confidence are really showing up in the last two weeks or so. But the index of leading economic indicators indicates that uh, maybe there is that slowdown is still on the menu. Um, yeah, no, we, we have some serious concerns. We continue to see the inverted yield curve with short-term rates above long-term rates. That's a typical indicator of, of recession. Um, you know, there are some pauses, in particular the stock market looks good, but, but other things are looking more mixed. And so I, I still think it's likely we will get a mild recession either late in 2023 or early in 2024. 
Has the data always been this noisy? Does it does it really point all over the place, or in in, in past uh, recoveries or recessions, it all points in the same direction? Because it seems like uh, you could you can cobble together a narrative based on all sorts of data points out there. Yeah, no, it, it, it's certainly the situation where we have some data that look very positive, the job market, for example, uh, the stock market, but other data look negative, the inverted yield curve, uh, the big contraction in the housing market that we've seen over the past year, even if things look to be stabilizing. So, um, you know, we've just been through a pretty extraordinary period over the past few years with the pandemic, with the stimulus, with very low interest rates. And so there are a lot of uh, cross-cutting things going on right now that make it difficult to predict exactly where the economy is headed. Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, American philanthropy drops for the first time in decades. Money Talks as the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The annual report on philanthropy from the group Giving USA shows donations down nearly 3.5% last year compared to 2021. Let's discuss the challenge for charity with Michael Thatcher, CEO of CharityNavigator.org, based in Saddlebrook, New Jersey. Michael, thanks for joining us today. And what are some of the contributing factors to this downturn in charitable giving last year? Hey, Rob. And I think some of the the key factors are, one, most primarily, it's the economy. Right, The economy has been down. Interest rates were up significantly last year. We had seven rate rate hikes over the last year, and that's affecting individual donors. And so the primary area that you see in the Giving Tuesday results are individual donors are down. So it's not just the dollar amount, but it's actually the number of donors that's down last year. And that's coming off a record year in 2021 for charitable giving. It was a new high. That's correct. And I think if you look at both 2020 and 2021, there was a huge increase in giving. And the stimulus for that was clearly covid It was the racial injustice issues that we're facing as a nation. And then last year, the beginning of last year, there was still a little bit of an uptick, which came through the uh, outpouring of gifts for the war in Ukraine. But since then, there's been a retraction. And does uh, stock market performance usually uh, correlate to uh, higher or lower charitable giving? Giving tends to follow the market quite closely. And and that, that has been consistent right now. And so the one thing that I see is potentially positive for us right now is that we did officially come out of a bear market earlier this month. And I'm no expert in the in the stock market, but things do appear to be moving in a better direction. And that should have a, a positive impact on donor behavior. The other thing that I can say is that Charity Navigator, we've also polled our our users and the donors that give through our platform, and we're seeing that over half of them are saying they're going to be giving at at least the same amount as they gave last year. And those that are saying there's about 30% saying they plan to give a little bit less, and their reasons are all still very much uh, related to economic uncertainty in their own own specific ways. personal circumstances. Obviously, the last three years have uh, been, uh, as, as, as we've said often, unprecedented times between the uh, the COVID pandemic, racial justice protests, and then um, uh, the, the economic turnaround that took place uh, shortly thereafter. How does charitable giving, uh, even you know, 2022, 2021, how does it stack up to the pre-pandemic time, 2018, 2019? The, the pandemic year sh- definitely showed an increase in giving. 
I think the the statistic that is a little bit troubling is the decline in the number of households that are actually giving. And that's a trend that started, I guess, if you look at around 2020, well, the year 2000, we had a, more than two-thirds of U.S. households actually gave to charity. By 2018, that number dropped to below 50%. And so I think that's the trend line that's troubling. Part of that is there has been a significant decline in religious giving. So that's a large chunk of it. The other is there were tax law changes in 2017, which raised the standard deduction. And that has affected people that now are taking the standard deduction and are not getting the the tax write-off on their charitable donations. And so that, too, has also had a negative impact on giving. Michael Thatcher, CEO of Charity CharityNavigator.org in Saddlebrook, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, a 90s toy phenomenon is making a comeback. The only program dedicated to currency events. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. There's an unexpected comeback in the toy world, and it's Furby, the bug-eyed, gibberish talking hit from the late 1990s. We welcome in Jennifer Jolly, Tech Life columnist for USA Today, founder, editor-in-chief of Techish.com, based in San Francisco. Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. And this seems like a pure nostalgia play. It is a pure nostalgia play with more integrated technology than we've ever seen before. And it could be equal parts adorable, annoying, and incredibly creepy. <laughs> and, and the target market for, for Furby 2.0 is the kids who were Fur, Furby fans and maybe begged their parents for one in 1998, 25 years ago. Now they're in oh their early God. 30s. They may have kids of their own. And then they could discover to their horror that uh, their parents were onto something back in 1998. Well, it used to just kind of talk all this gibberish. It was impossible to turn off or, you know, for lack of a, 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 a more accurate way to say this, it was impossible to shut it up. Now it's incredibly interactive. Five voice activated modes, 600 responses, including light sounds, 10 unique songs. It can speak a secret language. It can pair with an app on your smartphone or your tablet. Uh, and you know, it doesn't say that it's going to have uh, GPT or this kind of new uh, AI technology, but someone did it with a Furby just last year. They connected it to chat GPT and it got so creepy. It said it was going to take over the world. You can see that on YouTube. It's not all that far out or hard to imagine that this new, even more connected Furby could, you know, kind of start running your life in ways that are a little outside of the boundaries of, you know, maybe what a slinky, you know, another retro toy can do. Now, now refresh my memory. I, I was kind of outside of the Furby demographic when it was released in 1998. <laughs> but was this similar to the Tamagotchi, you know, that the the, the virtual pet or in, in my own kid's case, the, uh, the talking Hatchimal that uh, if it began to feel neglected, it would protest? Yes, that's very similar to what this toy is like, except it's even cuter. It's even bigger. It's like a, a tribble, you know, to Star Trek fans. Uh, it's furry. You can cuddle with it. Uh, and, you know, the Hasbro, who's 
put it, who's putting it out, said that they've done a lot of research to really understand what kids want to see in a new Furby. It's a free companion to do all the things your BFF would do, like dance to music, share fortunes, meditate. I guess today's kids are really into that, which is exciting. Mimic each other in silly voices, even put on a light show. Uh, belly tickles shaking. It, it pretends to poop uh, <laughs> when you pair it with an app on your mobile tablet, which we know is always, always funny. But, you know, those Tamagotchis and stuff, you could go hide them in drawers. You could put them outside. Uh, Furby, because he's so cute and lovable and weird, you, you couldn't do that quite as easily. But now there is an off switch. You can put a little uh, uh, sleep mask over his or her eyes, its eyes, and that at least helps us get a, a little more sanity. Well, whatever, whatever it, it takes, whatever it can take to uh, keep my kids from uh, changing the settings on the Alexa device, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. They give it new names, and and it. I mean, I, I salute their uh, the, I, I salute their cleverness, but uh, it can be irritating. So if the Furby uh, can distract them from that, uh, I salute it. Jennifer Jolly, Tech Life columnist for USA Today, based in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us. Today. Today. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, the ill-fated submersible trip to the Titanic is generating conversation about other dangerous tech-based endeavors, including space tourism. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The body of a 19-year-old woman is recovered from the waters of Lake Michigan on the north side of Chicago. Areas of northern Texas are cleaning up from deadly tornadoes. In Technology Thursday, the most likely tragic deep-sea dive to the wreck of the Titanic is putting the spotlight on extreme tech-tide adventures. The name Bed Bath & Beyond will survive despite the closing of its stores. WBBM business. The markets are mixed right now. The Dow down 76 points. The Nasdaq is up 58. The S&P 500 up just a fraction. We have 84 degrees right now under mostly sunny skies, topping out at 85. Cooler at the lake. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, the Chicago Police Department Marine Unit has recovered the body of a woman from Lake Michigan off of Foster Avenue Beach. It's in the area where a 19-year-old woman disappeared while swimming last night. Laura Smith Tana was swimming in the same vicinity this morning. Definitely want to make sure you're with other people if you can and have something so you're nice and visible. And if you get um, stranded, at least you can have a little bit of flotation to hang on to. Makes you feel safer. Definitely. The body pulled from the lake this morning has been taken to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office for identification. Severe weather in Texas and in the West has resulted in deaths, injuries, and a trail of destruction. A line of storms Wednesday night produced softball-sized hail that injured people at a Red Rocks Amphitheater concert and multiple tornadoes in north-central Texas. Lubbock Fire and Rescue joined multiple agencies sending mutual aid to help with search and rescue efforts in the hard-hit town of Matador. Homes were damaged, buildings were flattened, and power lines were snapped in half. Sergeant Johnny Burris is with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, we since had one that passed away at the hospital, so that brings the, uh, the total up to four. 
that have perished as a result of the storm. Audio courtesy KAMC KLBK. The National Weather Service says a supercell developed near Amarillo before striking the small town. Wednesday's tornado outbreak comes six days after a tornado left three people dead and more than 100 injured in Perryton, Texas. I'm Jennifer King. It's 12.32 as the Noon Business Hour continues, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. The Coast Guard is reporting that a debris field has been found near the wreckage of the Titanic as crews look for a missing submersible. The saga of the underwater vessel is prompting a fresh conversation about the dangers of that type of adventure, including space tourism. We welcome Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul, thank you for joining us today. And before we just talk about the level of acceptable risk. Let's talk about what's happening now to Ocean Gate expeditions and what will happen if uh, the crew is not discovered alive. And that is, there's been a great deal of reporting in the last couple of days about the design practices of the submarine, uh, what was deemed to be an acceptable level of risk, the proper amount of testing. And uh, before this uh, tragedy, this presumed tragedy, it was the it was the subject of a lot of gee whiz reporting, and let's uh, let's extrapolate that now to uh, space tourism, which again it's like the, the the tone of the reporting is well, will wonders ever cease? And is 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 this situation in the Titanic sub is that going to change the way we view these types of ventures? I think probably that's a great question. You're going the word we though uh, in this situation, and I'm not being glib. I mean. In other words, how we non-billionaires, which is obviously the vast majority of the planet, perceive this kind of risk is different than, say, somebody who has run out of things they can spend money on. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be snide about, you know, what billionaires' values are and so forth, because I have no idea. I don't know a lot of billionaires. Um, but I will say that it is widely reported, speaking of reporting, that when you are that wealthy, uh, these adventures appeal because these adventures like space tourism, uh, like, you know, anything that Elon Musk is offering uh, and, and same with Jeff, Jeff Bezos and all that. I mean, all of that is, a, is an avenue to an experience that is different than anybody else that can get to. So there's bragging rights. And so, you know, and all that kind of thing. I don't think that the bragging rights thing is going to be diminished by what looks like it may be a tragedy. Uh, in the situation of of the um, the Titanic and and so on, the point is that you're asking about whether that's going to impact space tourism and other adventure tourism. I think it would for me because you know if I'm deciding what to spend my dollars on, um, then I'm definitely going to rule out high risk. I don't know how billionaires will look at this, but I definitely think there'll be maybe a modest dent or maybe some pause, but I think it's going to continue. And, and these are, are ventures that do get a great deal of investor backing. Um, and and the belief is once you send all the celebrity and paying tourists up there, you know how to replicate this at scale, and then the cost comes down to maybe the, the from, from extraordinarily wealthy to someone who's merely well-to-do. Yep, you make a good point. In other words, when there's when there are cost efficiencies to the extent that you can have those in space launches and, and deep sea launches, uh, those will be passed on in terms of you know reduced cost for the event for the experience. So be it. Uh, but you know I, that that's when you are asking a different question. In other words, am I if I ever get to the point where I can afford something like a tri- trip to space, am I going to be given a little pause by this experience? You know what this this parent, apparent tragedy? Sure. Um, I just think that you know look the profit motive is ever is is never going to stop. Um, the idea there were some reports that the uh, that the disaster started, if it was in fact a disaster, uh, started when people were sort of cutting corners or maybe not looking carefully at some of the certifications they'd have to get because those were time consuming. And these guys who designed this 
Kraft wanted to get a quick quick access to people who would pay $250,000 a ticket, basically, four or five people per experience. Well, if that price drops, I think you're going to have people asking these questions for sure. Right now, I don't think billionaires are going to be given much pause, especially if they're given an opportunity nobody else can have. And that is the bragging right that those cost reduction or not that they're after. It's already shining a bright light on uh, Ocean Gates uh, procedures, safety, testing, uh, how this Titan submersible came together. Is there going to be a light just as bright shown on Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic to make sure that these uh, spaceships for paying tourists are in fact ship shape? See, I think that's really that's a great question, and I think the I think that the answer is the bright light is already on it. In other words, there has been so much press coverage, including us, I guess, uh, of these events, these sort of into space or into orbit or into brief orbit type events, that they're getting so much scrutiny that they are. And in fact, because a lot of these entities, including Elon Musk's, are working hand in hand with NASA, there is a lot of scrutiny, and the certification process and the testing process is much more robust than some of the tinier operations that don't get the light of the day. So back to your point, if there's lots of attention, I think personally, if what I've seen and certainly what I've read, us so much more attention yields lots more testing and, and to the degree of possible, lots more safety. But that is a re- that's a relative term. So if you're going to hurl me into space at you know at whatever number you know Mach eight or something, I don't know if I'm if I'm ready for that. But I can tell you that there's probably a lot more testing of that than there was uh, for the most recent. Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, former tech editor for the Today Show. Thanks for joining us today. The, the Coast Guard will brief reporters on this debris field discovered on the ocean floor near the Titanic wreck around 2 o'clock Central Time today. We'll pass that along to you as it happens. Because money matters. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Stocks are mixed today. Joining us with the latest and what's moving Wall Street is Art Hogan, chief market strategist at B. Riley Financial, based in New York. Art, thank you for joining us today. And it appears the uh, rally that we were experiencing for about a week and a half uh, might have either leveled off or is losing steam. Yeah, I will tell you this. It's not surprising. We were unidirectionally higher five weeks in a row for the S&P, eight weeks in a row for the NASDAQ. It's not unusual to, to see some consolidation. And I think that's a healthy pause that we're taking. And we've seen that uh, this will be the third day of uh, sideways to slightly lower action. I think the good news, though, Rob, is, and, and, and I think that it, it's been pretty evident throughout the month of June, is that the rally's broadening out, meaning it's not just those magnific- magnificent seven AI uh, darlings that are driving all of the action. We're starting to see some of the industrials, some of the materials, certainly some of the banks, uh, the small caps outperform the S&P 500, and that's a very good sign. So, you know, the, you, you go, you go, uh, you race ahead for five weeks in a row and, and take a week to cool off a bit, and it cools off that short-term overbought uh, environment that we were in in both the S&P and the NASDAQ. And we're approaching the midpoint of the year, and in your judgment, uh, what has been the story of 23 so far, and what has been a surprise? Well, the story has been we've been waiting for a recession um, for for the better part of 18 months now that just doesn't seem to want to come. This is an economy that refuses to go gentle into the good night. And a lot of that's driven by the consumer and the consumer is driven by the high levels of employment, the resilient labor market. So the surprise is that we've got uh, 
the folks that had called for a sloppy first half uh, were completely wrong, and the folks that have been calling for a recession have pushed that off into 2024. The biggest surprise, I think, was the theme around something that companies have been working on for years but seems to have come to fruition, and that's artificial intelligence. And that has been a driver of a lot of excitement, and, and now we're trying to figure out how to capitalize on that. Obviously, the incumbent players like Microsoft and Alphabet and NVIDIA have been the, the early winners. Just have to see if that excitement's got ahead of itself in terms of valuations. Yeah, the hard part about uh, when, 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 when talking about AI is finding, trying to determine uh, what AI applications are real and uh, what AI applications are just merely the old razzle-dazzle, uh, as Billy Flynn said in the movie Chicago. And uh, in, in some right now it seems like uh, both, both categories are being rewarded. Yeah, I think that uh, if we take any lessons from the 99 and 2000 dot-com bubble, we, we need to understand that uh, there were, you know, about 653 companies that came public just because they put dot-com at the end of their corporate name and said they had a website. And of those, there's about three that still exist, right? The, the, that kind of hype hasn't necessarily gotten to us in AI, but it's likely on the way. So I'd be careful of the things that are AI adjacent with no real business model. And then I'd look for the way companies are actually going to monetize this new technology. And we may not know that for several years. So while it's going to be very exciting and likely make us more productive in terms of making money from it, it's going to be a few years down the road. So temper your enthusiasm and watch out for the razzle-dazzle. And then the index of leading economic indicators uh, kind of uh, harshing everyone's good vibe about the economy are we have you ever seen a situation where um the data points don't really point to a consistent narrative that maybe before covid if they if if a bad thing was on the horizon the numbers were pointing in that direction or if a good thing was on on the horizon the numbers were pointing in that direction here it seems very muddled yeah, it certainly does. Leading economic indicators have been negative for, for uh, 10 or 11 months in a row. That has always meant we're, we're either in or heading to a recession. The, the one of the 10 leading economic indicators, it's a, it's a group of 10 that they look at, that has been positive throughout the cycle has been the employment situation. And then there's two others that are back to neutral. So that may rectify itself without actually having you know, gone into the typical deep uh, recession. So what we may have gone through is a rolling recession that's sector-based, right? We certainly know that auto and housing and manufacturing went through their own recessions over the course of the last 15 or, or, or 18 months, and now they're starting to plateau. We think that services likely cool down a bit, but don't go into a, a contraction. So I think it's been uh, the, the leading economic indicators have been confusing in so much as they're pointing to things that we know slowed down already and are likely getting better. And I think that, uh, you know, in terms of the things that we can certainly predict, um, for sure, if you look over the course of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we know the Sox are going to win, right? Because the White Sox are playing the Red Sox. <laughs> that and, is and, true. <laughs> right. So there's the one thing we can say for sure is the Sox will win this weekend. Well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, have you been watching the White Sox lately? Art Hogan, <laughs> Chief Market Strategist with B. Riley Financial based in New York. Thanks for joining us today. Still to come, the future of Bed, Bath & Beyond. Your best stock option. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Bed, Bath & Beyond stores are closed or are in the process of being shuttered, but it appears the name will survive. Let's discuss what's happening with Jan Rogers Niffin, CEO of J. Rogers Niffin Worldwide. Jan, thank you for joining us today. And Bed, Bath & Beyond seems to be uh, in the same realm as Toys R Us, a situation in which the name was a lot more valuable than the uh, physical plant attached to it. <laughs> At least what was left of the physical plant. 
Yeah, I remember at one point in time, uh, under that name, they were doing $16 billion of sales a year. And even when they went bankrupt, they were doing about $8 billion of sales. So everybody in America knows the name Bed Bath & Beyond. It's been around for 50 years. So it's not surprising somebody was willing to pay for the intellectual property. $21 million, you know, I can't judge the validity of how much it'll really be worth going forward, but my guess is they got a pretty good deal for that name at $21 million because they're going to run it online and it'll attract a lot of attention. They get the right to the to the name, the website, the data for the clients that have been using in the past. So they'll probably build a pretty solid business on that name. And, you know, Overstock, they can they can use the help because they're still trying to grow that business. Yeah, Overstock.com, buying the intellectual property, name, and digital assets of Bed Bath & Beyond. And uh, we we saw this before with uh, Toys R Us, uh, the the brand name lived on. And it it does uh, have a little bit of extra life as a pop-up store inside Macy's locations. And is that kind of an innovative new way of using old names in retail? Well, I don't know if it's innovative because we've been doing this at least for 20 years that I know of since the Internet became a place to sell goods. So anytime one of these names comes up for sale because of some problem with the company, somebody has picked it up. And so there's a whole lot of names that got bought you know, using the intellectual property so that they could reach out to customers and have a name that's recognized. But Toys R Us is a really good example. That was picked up. They ran it online and they started opening some stores, and they got 474 Macy's locations. So they've built that into a pretty good business. Whether Bed Bath & Beyond will just be an Internet name, you know, a place to buy online, or if they'll actually start trying to move some stores out again is yet to be seen. But they do own the right to that intellectual property. So you could see some pop-up stores. You could see them inside of some place like a Macy's, or you could see them open a few stores. But the main reason they bought it clearly is Overstock is a big online business, and they think that name will mean something to their customer. Jan Rogers Niffin, CEO of J. Rogers Niffin Worldwide, based in New York. Thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's noon business hour, we'll have the replay podcast available shortly at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. It's 12.53. Business news from Bloomberg. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.